Father, we thank you for bringing us uh, together again this morning. Help us to sit under your word with humility and to find uh, the help that we need through it today. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, good morning. So we're in 1 Timothy. Last week, we began this chapter, chapter 3, that lays out the qualifications of church officers, right? And the first part of the chapter addresses the office of overseer, which is synonymous, as we saw last week, with elders. And the second part that we'll deal with today deals with deacons. And then we're also going to do the very end of the, of the chapter as well. So now, it's important to remember that these two basic distinctions of office that we see here in 1 Timothy 3, uh, overseer and deacon, that that basic distinction goes back to the, the um, goes back early in the life of the church, all right? How far back does it go? Anybody know? Of course you know. What is it? Acts chapter 6. Six. Seven is where he gets, you know, stoned, as they say. Um, now, let's look at Acts 6. I want you to notice a few things. This is Acts 6. Now, at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, it is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The statement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, and these they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. Now notice a couple of things here, just real quick. Uh, First of all, there's a division of labor. Do you see that? It's not good for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So there's a division of labor, right? And then the basic qualifications for church office. This is the, if you took um, 1 Timothy 3, and boiled it down, all the qualifications we looked at last week and everything we'll look at this week, it boils down to these two categories. He says, uh, they say, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom. So those basic two categories, good reputation and mature, godly, right? And then that gets itemized kind of in 1 Timothy 3, as we'll see in a minute. And then you see that this is an official office. How do we know that this is an official office? An actual office of the church. Yeah. What is that? What's the word we use for that? Ordination. These men are ordained. They laid their hands on them. All right. This is from the beginning seen as an office and, as a matter of fact, an office with authority that we'll get at later. And so we see those, all those same elements in 1 Timothy, or 1 Timothy 3. 
All right, now let's begin just with the first part of our section for today, which is verse eight, eight and nine. So deacons likewise must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Now, what does the term deacon mean? It means servant. It's literally the word for servant that you could use in all kinds of contexts, not just kind of this official church kind of language, but that was the word they would have used. One of the words they would have used for servant in any context. It can be used both in informal and formal ways. So kind of unofficial and official ways, okay? The Apostle Paul uses it in the informal sense when it's applied to both men and women who serve the church in some way. So there, is a, there are contexts where this word is used to describe women, servants of the church, all right? But it's used in an informal way. It's also used... Um, He uses it, the Apostle Paul, in the informal sense when he calls Jesus a servant to the circumcision in Romans 15, 8, a deacon to the circumcision. He's not talking about church office there. He's talking about servant, right? He uses it uh, even to describe the work of the civil magistrate in Romans 13 when he says that the the civil government, the civil magistrate, is a minister of God to you for good. That's the word deacon, all right? No one thinks that, you know, getting elected makes you a deacon in the church. It's just used as the word for servant. The word can also be used in the sense of minister in the church, right? We talk about ministers. We talk about the ministry, right? The Christian, the gospel ministry. That word means it's the same word for deacon. So the Apostle Paul, again, uh, in 1 Corinthians 3, 5, he says, what then is Apollos and what is Paul? servants, deacons, quote unquote, through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. But he's not talking about, he's not using the word there in the, in the sense of church office of deacon. Does that make sense? So this, it's a word that can be used in both ways, informally or formally. It's also used in an official formal sense, sense uh, describing a church office. So Philippians 1.1. He says, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and the deacons. So there you have it clearly in a formal sense, just like you have it here in 1 Timothy 3. Now, by the way, the same thing is true of the word elder. All right, the Greek word for elder can mean one of two things in an informal or a formal sense. In the formal sense, of course, it means the office. But what does it mean in the informal sense? Old man, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. All the elders are sitting up front here. All right, so that, so it's used in both senses and you have to figure out what's being being said in, in the particular place you're looking. So as an office in the church, It calls for certain qualifications just like the office of overseer or elder does. And so he says in verse eight, deacons likewise, right? So he's continuing on. He's been talking about an official office, the the office of overseer and the qualifications required. And then he says deacons likewise. So in the same way that overseers or elders have qualifications, so do deacons. He's just continuing the thought. And he says, first of all, they must be men of dignity. 
Uh, This means serious, worthy of respect. It's a good way really to summarize a lot of what he says about overseers. And he's kind of continuing on. He says, just like that, you know, that's, that's the kind of man. It's a different office, but there's the kind of man that is required and he must be, they must be men of dignity. All right? Not flippant. Not, not trite, not superficial. Then he says, not double-tongued. See? Men of dignity, not double-tongued. What's that? Oh, I'm sorry. That was the kitchen. Wow, I heard the kitchen. What does double-tongued mean? What do you think when you hear double-tongued? Yeah, you think of a snake. <laughs> Forked tongue. Yeah, insincere, two-faced saying one thing to these people, but something else to these people, or saying something behind the back here, but to the face here, right? Double-tongued. They have to be not double-tongued, sincere. Is that what Peter did? Yeah, Peter, Peter, George just mentioned, remember Peter um, that Paul talks about in Galatians? He's double-tongued in a sense, isn't he? He's treating people this way, then that way. Then he says, not addicted to much wine, right? Again, he must be sober, just like the overseer, both literally and figuratively, so not just in the sense of sober-minded, but yes, sober-minded, but also sober, not getting drunk. Not fond of sordid gain. Sordid gain, that's not not a term we use anymore, but it means uh, dirty, right? dirty, smarmy, slimy, dishonest. This is a requirement for all church officers. First um, Timothy 3.3, 3, we saw last week, for the, for the overseers, says free from the love of money. First Peter 5.2, Peter again talking to elders, he says, shepherd the flock among you, the, sh- the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. All church officers have to be motivated by a desire to serve God and the church, not by a desire for financial gain, especially not for dirty financial gain, right? Telling people what they wanna hear so that they will pay you more. That kills, that absolutely kills the, the heart of all Christian ministry, whether you're an elder or a pastor or a deacon. We saw last week how that would poison the work of an overseer or a pastor. But think about all the money handled by deacons. That's really part of the essence of the office of deacon is dealing with people and money, right? And think about what would be the, the bad, the, like the ultimate uh, example of how this goes wrong. We have an example of this in the New Testament, actually. What's that? Judas, exactly. Remember Judas? It says of him in John 12, 6. Remember, he's complaining about um, uh, the woman who, who breaks, who does the, the ointment or the, the perfume on Jesus' feet, or you remember that story? And he's, oh, we could have sold that and given it to the poor, right? Doesn't that sound... You know, noble. And then it says this, the Apostle John says this kind of in an editorial statement, John 12, 6. Now he, Judas, said this not because he was concerned about the poor, right? But because he was a thief 
<laughs> more money in the box means more money in my pocket. So let's sell it and give it to the poor, right? He was a thief, and as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. Is that a hand? Yes. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. That, well, that would be a part of that category for sure. You know, get quick rich. Um, all these little schemes that people come up with for, you know, not working and getting paid a lot of money. Yeah, that would definitely fall in the category of sordid gain. Okay. Not that kind of man. All right. Then he says, these are kind of a couple of negatives. And then he says, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. The deacon must embrace the revealed truth of the Christian faith with a clear conscience. That's what it means to hold to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. You must eat. He has to embrace the truth of the Christian faith with a clear conscience. He must know the truth, hang on to it, and not just in some kind of academic intellectual way, but live according to it. Live according to it with a clear conscience. So deacons don't get a pass when it comes to either doctrine or conduct. Okay? Deacons don't get a pass when it comes to either doctrine or conduct. They're not teachers in the way that overseers are, but that doesn't mean that the doctrinal content of their knowledge and their faith don't matter. This is held right at the top of what it means to be qualified to be a deacon, all right? And the, the qualifications between an overseer, an elder, and a deacon are slightly different. Uh, but that doesn't mean a deacon can be less godly than an overseer. That's not, that's not where the difference lies. The difference doesn't lie in, okay, we've got men in the church and we've got really godly ones and we've got sort of godly ones. And the really godly ones we make elders and the sort of godly ones, well, you know, I mean, come on, they're just deacons. This is, I want to abolish that thought today. Being a deacon is not being a kind of a junior elder. You understand? It's a different office that calls for different kinds of gifts. And if the congregation has identified you as a, as a deacon, don't be, um, what? Don't look down on the office of deacon. Okay? We'll talk more about that in a minute. Because the Apostle Paul actually says some very kind of exalted things about the office of deacon. That's not just a junior elder. It's not, it's not a stepping stone. It's not, okay, I'm going to move through the ranks, like in the military or in a business, you know. Or I'm going to become a deacon, and then I'll become an elder. That's just, it's just the career path, you know. It's just like the, every deacon should become an elder someday. No. Men who are gifted to be elders should be elders. Men who are gifted to be deacons should be deacons. And the gifts are different. And Jesus gives the gifts as he wills. Okay? You all with me? So, different offices, different duties, both high callings. And the character required is exactly the same. 
The gifting might be a little different, but the character is exactly the same. Now in verse 10, he gives directions about the process of ordaining deacons. He says, these men must also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. There's that beyond reproach thing, just like it was for the overseer, right? Again, this is not a lower bar of godliness or of character. It's a different kind of gifting, all right? So notice that it says, these men, the deacons, must also first be tested. You see that? Why does he say that the deacons must also first be tested? Because the overseers must also be tested too. Okay, he's just saying, yeah, just like he didn't, he didn't say it overtly in that first section, but here he's saying it, I think. All, both of these men, both, both categories, both offices, these men must, of course, first be tested. But with the deacons, he says, let them also be first be tested, then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. And so there's, as with um, overseers and deacons, you know, both categories, there is a careful process. Uh, there is, there's thought, there's time. These qualifications, remember this letter is to be read to the whole church, just like it's being read and studied here in our church. These are qualifications that are out in the open, that are public for everybody to see and for everybody to have in mind as they, as they think about the men of the church. And so these, these qualifications are announced publicly to the church. The church is to evaluate the men carefully to see who can serve as both either overseers or deacons. This is not a popularity contest or a statement about their wealth or their personality. This is, these are standards that have to do with their gifting, their maturity, and their godliness. And so we should always be looking at the men of the church with these qualifications in mind, right? Just always be thinking about this. Is this man an overseer? Is this man a deacon? Maybe. Maybe. Let's, uh, let's watch, you know? Let's watch. Let's watch and test him for a while. Let's just see. Let's see, let's see what, let's see how this man is when he doesn't think people are looking at him and evaluating him to put him into office, right? Let's, let's just watch. Let's not give him a heads up. Oh, by the way, we're thinking about you. Oh, okay, okay, right. Uh, yeah, uh, you know. No, watch. What the Apostle Paul says later in, in 1 Timothy 5, 22, he says, do not lay hands on anyone too hastily and thereby share responsibility for the sins of others. Keep yourself free from sin. Laying on of hands, again, that's ordination. So he says to Timothy, don't be hasty in ordaining anybody. And that, that would be across the board for all the offices of the church, pastor, elder, deacon, don't lay your hands on anybody hastily. If you do, you'll share in the sins of that man. All right, in other words, you're responsible. We'll get to that uh, in chapter five. Okay, so office of deacon, not a lesser godliness or lesser character, okay? Different gifts, different office. Now, verse 11. 
Verse 11, he throws a seemingly random, throws in the seemingly random word about women. All right? Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Now this is strange because it's, it's plopped in the middle of his instructions about deacons, right? In the next verse, verse 12, he goes back to deacons again. So he's deacons, women, deacons. Now what in the world is going on? Who are these women? Why does he mention them here and give them their own qualifications? All right, well, there are at least four options for this. All right, so let's think about this. Number one, these are female deacons who share the same ordained office alongside the male deacons. Is that, okay, that's one option. They are just simply women deacons who are exactly the same, have all the exact same function, exact same role. They are ordained as the deacons are to be ordained. Okay, that's one option. Number two, they are women who hold a separate but analogous office of deaconess whose role is to serve other women in the church in sex-specific ways. So the other, this option says they're not deacons, they're not serving alongside or, or in a non, um, uh, what's the word? Uh, there's no distinction whatsoever, no. This says they are, it's a separate but analogous office. In other words, there are all kinds of diaconal type things that are appropriate, that it would be very weird and very strange, very inappropriate in a sense for a man to do for a woman, okay? Does that make sense? Um, okay, so there is a, this view says they were women who held a separate but analogous office of deaconess, not deacon, but deaconess, whose role is to serve other women in the church, not men, but other women in sex-specific ways. Third, they are female assistants to the male deacons helping in sex-specific ways. So they're not ordained, but they're helping. They're deacon, deacons to the deacons, you know, servants, right? They're helping and to do things that would be awkward or difficult for a man to do, but a woman can come and do them just fine. That's one option. And then last, they're the wives of the deacons. Okay? Yes? I see there's no option five. They're the women of the church. Because that doesn't make sense. <laughs> because of the context. He's talking about offices here. Just to say, oh, let's throw in a random verse about all the women of the church. That just doesn't make sense. Okay, because he uses the word likewise. That word likewise ties all these together. Overseers, deacons likewise, women likewise. You see what I'm saying? Okay, now. The only option that I would be theologically opposed to is option number one. Okay, option one, right? Female deacons who share the same ordained office alongside the male deacons. It's just completely irrelevant whether they're men or women, they're all ordained, they all have the same authority, they're doing this exactly the same kind of work. Okay, I think that, that view doesn't work. 
okay? Number one, it's an ordained office. Women are not ordained in the New Testament. And the office of deacon has authority. Now, so this is not an office that's open to women. Now, there are many in the so-called Reformed Church today who want women to serve as female deacons, who want women to serve in, in the number one sense here. Not as deaconesses, not as a separate office that deals only with women, but as on a, a, a board of deacons, completely equal, and there's in every sense, and you know, there's no distinction made between the work or the authority or anything between a male and a female deacon. There's many in the reformed world today who are trying to press that, that view and that practice. Uh, for years, men like Tim Keller in New York City and many others who follow him have tried to place women in the office of deacon, making no distinction at all between the men and women who serve in that office. When he got pushback from the Presbyterian Church in America, his denomination, because that is a clear violation of their book of church order, he decided, okay, we won't, we won't ordain any deacons, even though deacon is an, is an ordained office, clearly. We'll just, we're going we're gonna to work around the system. We're not going to ordain any deacons. We're going to have men and women serving together in a new office that we made up called deeks. So a gender neutral term, deek. Not deacon, not deaconess, deek. Sort of, you, you know, Yeah. This, is, this was his attempt to circumvent or get, create a loophole that he could jump through that would allow him not to be breaking the, the Book of Church Order of the PCA that he had sworn allegiance to, right? That's bad. He wasn't trying to do any of these. He was number one is exactly what was going on there. Same office, same authority, no distinction. One of the ways they've tried to pull this off in denominations like the PCA is to claim that um, deacon is not an office of authority. So you have denominations that officially teach that women may not have authority over men, right? Well, if you're gonna have women deacons in the sense of number one here, one way to, another way to get around that is say, oh, well, deacon is not an office of authority. And so for a woman to serve as a deacon is fine because it's not an office of authority anyway. Okay, can you see how that might be plausible? It's plausible, but it's wrong. It's clear that they have authority. I'll, we'll get to that more in a second. I would be open to all the rest, numbers two to four, two, three, and four. All right. The real question today though, I mean, I'd be open to that theologically. The real question today, what is he talking about? What does the Apostle Paul actually have in his mind? What does the Holy Spirit have in mind as he writes this? Which makes the best sense exegetically? And I have come to believe that number four actually makes the best sense exegetically, that he's actually talking about the wives of the deacons. Okay. Excuse me? Is it their wives, yeah. Now that would be an interpretation 
I'd rather leave it ambiguous. That's a, that's a, that's a translation problem. Do you go ahead and just say wives or do you translate it? The word translated women or wives can be translated either women or wives, but it's ambiguous based on the context. And so that, the ESV narrows it down and says wives, but the word could mean either women or wives. But I do think it's wives. Now think about this. The work of deacons is particularly to serve the poor. That's, you go back to Acts 6, that was the origin of the office in the church, right? There are parts of that work that require a woman. I believe the Apostle Paul assumes that the wives of the deacons will be doing that kind of work alongside their husbands. Okay, yes. Yes, that, they, they kind of, I would, I would say the wives of the deacons are assumed to be doing this kind of work, okay? But I do think he's actually talking about their wives, yeah. So think about this, the Apostle Paul would never advocate that a woman, or that a man would work in an intimate way with a woman who is not his wife. He just wouldn't. You read the New Testament, read, the, read the, the letters, read the warnings about sexual immorality. First Timothy alone is filled with instructions about modesty and, and warnings about women who feel sensual desires in disregard of Christ. Okay, we'll get to those. There are all kinds of warnings like that. I can't imagine him thinking it'd be a good idea for men to work closely with women who aren't their wives. I just don't believe, you know, Mike Pence is, is not um, novel in that. You understand? Also, all the other officers, the overseers and the deacons, have, have these qualifications that are f specifically familial. Uh, the overseers and the deacons both have, have to be the husband of one wife. But the women of verse 11 do not have that qualification, the wife of one husband, because it's assumed they are already, they are the one, they're the woman. That is the wife, right? She's married to that deacon that he's about to talk about his marriage in verse 12. Also in the next verse, verse 12, um, Paul uses the same word to clearly refer to a deacon's wife. He says deacons must be husbands of only one wife. And it makes sense to me that he would mean the same thing in both places, verse 11 and 12. He's talking about the wives. Lastly, if these are the wives of the deacons, it makes sense for them to be plopped in the middle of the qualifications for deacons. This is not a separate office. In order to qualify as a deacon, a man must have a wife like this. That's what I think he's saying. In other words, you can't, just, you can't isolate the man apart from his family. You can't do that with the, with the overseer. We already saw that. And then in particular, it's about his children. Remember that? And now with the deacon, it's about his wife. The, he, she's going to be involved up to her eyeballs if this is working right with the work of her husband. And so in order to qualify as a deacon, a man must have a wife like this. Like what? Well, here are the qualifications. Oh boy. <laughs> Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Think about that. That's, that's exactly what you'd want. Dignified, Serious, worthy of respect, not malicious gossips. Literally, the word here is not diabolical. <laughs> because, <laughs> that's a good qualification, right? Because the word, so we get the word devil, 
from the word that's used here, the devil is the slanderer, right? The accuser, that's what this word means, diabolical. A slanderer, a malicious gossip, a woman who cannot control her tongue and who sees things and spreads them and maybe even intensifies them, right? Can't have that, cannot have that. When a person is a slanderer, he's acting like the devil himself. And so the deacon's wife can't be a slanderer, not a malicious gossip. Temperate, self-controlled with her temper, with her tongue, with her drinking, with her lifestyle, that's a blanket term, temperate, faithful in all things, trustworthy and dependable. Okay, so these are real qualifications. And if we're doing our work right as a church, we're not just gonna think about the man, we're gonna think about the woman. We're gonna think about the family. In both cases, of both elder and, and deacon. Now we've got to run on. Then he goes back to deacons. Deacons must be husbands of only one wife. We talked about that last week. And good managers of their children and of their own households. We talked about that last week. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Look at that verse 13. All right? For those who have served well. This is an amazing statement. The Apostle Paul says that a deacon who has served well gets for himself what? What does he get for himself? A high standing. A high standing. So he's elevating the office of servant. Whoever serves well as a deacon obtains for himself a high standing. That doesn't make sense. If you're thinking wrongly about the office of deacon as some kind of subordinate little thing, well, you know, well, you know, he's not, he's not that godly. Let's make him a deacon. You know, he can sweep floors. Yeah, let's make him a deacon. You know? Whoever serves well as a deacon gets for himself a high standing. He is at pains to elevate the, the office of deacon in the eyes of, this, of the church. And this is exactly in keeping with what the Lord Jesus says, remember? If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last, last of all and servant of all. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be a slave of all. For even the son of man didn't come to be served, but to serve, to give his life a ransom for many. Acts, Stephen, well, he says what the other thing that they will get, not just a high calling or a high standing, but also great confidence in the faith. Think about the first deacon, one of the first deacons, Stephen, right? A man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And then chapter six, verse eight, Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people, but they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. In other words, in the, in the New Testament, these deacons are active in ministry. In Stephen's case, he's preaching publicly, and he's killed for it. He's a man full of Holy Spirit and wisdom. He's not just a guy who's good with money. All right. Okay. (laughs) Just a few minutes left. We need to move on to the last section. I, I want us to be very clear about this though, okay? Deacons, how many deacons are in here right now? Raise your hand. All right. High standing, 
great confidence in the faith. Right? We need to honor the office, and we do. We thank you, men, for your work. All right? Okay. Let's move on. Verse 14. Verse 14, he's telling us why he's writing the letter. All right? I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long, but in case I'm delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. So he wants to come in person and soon, but in case he's delayed, he's writing these things, and he wants them to have them in writing, and he wants the church to have them in writing, and of course, we get to benefit from that. And he's telling them, both Timothy and the officers and the members of the church, how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. These are amazing titles for the church. Household of God, church of the living God, pillar and support of the truth. These instructions about church officers and church discipline and good teaching and bad teaching, all of this is incredibly important because we are talking about how to behave in God's household, right? We're talking about the nature of the called out assembly. That's what church means. People have been called out from the world. The, the called out assembly of the living God, the true and living God. We're talking about the role and the purpose of the church as it displays and holds up the truth. So this is not a club. This is not some man-made organization. This isn't some little cultural artifact that we get to meddle with. And you can, you can regard or disregard, you can take it or leave it, who cares? You can join it or not, doesn't matter, whatever. No, this isn't a pathetic little institution. This is God's household, the household of God himself, the place where the true and living God dwells with and rules over his own family. And we may not disregard and disrespect the church, God has given the church a noble and ongoing work, function as God's family, gathered together as God's army, called out from the world for a purpose, hold up and hold out the truth, right? That's why these offices are so important. This isn't just some silly little club like the Kiwanis, you know? This is the church of the living God. Then he goes on, last verse. Verse 16, this is most likely either a hymn or a part of a creed. It is poetic, it's powerful, and it summarizes the whole cosmic work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why is he saying this? This is the truth that the church upholds and displays for all to see. This is the truth that the officers of the church must protect and proclaim. Verse 16, by common confession, Great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. This is, a, this is kind of a liturgical way, you could say, confession or a hymn. It's clear, it's, a, it's poetic. This is a, a liturgical, poetic way of talking about the whole work of Jesus Christ. He who was revealed in the flesh. God the Father revealed his son by sending him in the likeness of sinful flesh as a man so that he could die. He was vindicated in the spirit. That's talking, I believe, about the resurrection. He was declared to be the son of God with power by the Holy Spirit when the Holy Spirit raised him from the dead. He was seen by angels. 
after he conquered death, he declared his victory over all the principalities and powers. He rules over all the angelic hosts, both good and evil, right? Uh, the unseen and the seen, all the principalities, the name, he's been given a name that's above every name, both in heaven and on earth. That's what he's talking about here. He's proclaimed among the nations. His power and authority as king of heaven and earth is proclaimed to all the nations. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations. He's proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of his death and his resurrection and his lordship is bearing fruit in all the world, bringing the nations into the kingdom of God and taken up in glory. This is the Lord Jesus exalted as head over all things for the sake of the church, given a name which is above every name. This is the whole work of Christ in redemption, boiled down into a confession or even a hymn. And this is why it's important to keep the offices of the church pure. All right? This is the truth that the church holds up as the pillar and the support of the truth. This is, I'm going to close with this. I want you to see these connections, all right? This is the kind of thing that is put into hymn form in the person of Christ in that, in that hymn. This is Daniel 7, where the Daniel says, I kept looking in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming and he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. This is the, what Paul calls the mystery of godliness. The authority and lordship of Jesus Christ is the heart of our religion. It is the object of our worship. It's the focus of our piety, okay? It's the authority and lordship of Jesus Christ. This is not some little game to be trifled with. This isn't some little thing about politics, the politics of the church. Who's the most popular? Who has the most land? Who has the most money? You know? Who has the most education? This is about the lordship of Jesus Christ. We better take it seriously. All right, I'm late, gotta be done. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for these words and for this instruction and for this, um, this, the weight of all of this. And we thank you for the men who serve us well, both as overseers and pastors and deacons. And we pray that you would protect all of us, all of them from, uh, from pride, from open sin, that, is, that causes your name to be slandered. Please, Father, help us. And help us to bear the weight of all of this with, with joy and with uh, maturity. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.